Welcome to the Previously Learned Podcast with myself, James Shaw, and good mate, Michael McLaughlin. I lost my parents fairly recently, and Mike likewise has lost his dad. This loss of my parents got me thinking a lot about life lessons that I can pass on to my children. Now, given that my kids certainly don't listen to me, I wanted to get some life lessons from the people that have been there, done that, and got the t-shirt. If you like Previously Learned, please let one other person know. If you don't like it, then please let me know. It'd be brilliant if you could like, comment, subscribe. It really does help Mike and I improve the podcast. On this episode of Previously Learned, we were very fortunate to be joined by the thoroughly decent Michael Campion. Michael's a former investment banker and professional footballer turned entrepreneur. He's also a corporate trainer and speaker. As well as this, Michael hosts the incredibly fantastic podcast, Playing the Inner Game, which I really do recommend. As always, I hope you enjoy this. So, Michael, welcome to the Prince of Home podcast. Thank you very much for coming on. It's awesome to have you on. I know you're extremely busy, so we really do appreciate it. So, welcome. Oh, my absolute pleasure to be here, guys. Thank you for having me. Absolutely no worries. So, give a very brief bio on yourself. You are um, a former investment banker, former professional footballer. You're an entrepreneur. I'm going to struggle to pronounce your company now at this time of morning. <laughs> uh, for Fox, okay. Uh, so Very well done. Quite quality style, okay. Um, manufacturer. Uh, you're a trainer and speaker, podcast host, uh, playing in a game, which is an awesome podcast, by the way. Absolutely love it. Thank you. So we can be a percentage of that, and then we'd be very, very happy with it. <laughs> um, well, you work with fund managers as well. With your your speaker, mentor, a coach, working with fund managers, banks, major brands. How did it all come about? <laughs> How did I arrive here? I ask myself sometimes how I arrived here. I think I've, you know, I'll begin with the end in mind and where I am today. I think I'm very, very lucky, first and foremost, that I've managed to create a portfolio career of all those things you've mentioned, a portfolio career where I get to lean into the things that I enjoy doing and I get to lean into things that I'm actually good at. And thankfully there are people in the world who who will see the value in it and will and will pay for it and not everyone gets to say that not everyone gets to say that a lot of times people will fall into fall into a career they'll fall into a line of work where there's maybe some level of expertise or skill set that they have but there's there's no love there's no passion and sometimes people pursue something very passionate about and they can't find a way to monetize it so i feel very fortunate that i've been able to marry all these different parts of myself and my personality and find a way to make a living and find a way to design a life that i find very very enjoyable very rewarding and it also makes time for the thing that you didn't mention there at the start and and you didn't because it was purely you know a business buyer which is of course family uh, and i know that's very close to both of you guys and the way I've designed my life, I've designed it in such a way that I get to engage with the corporate world or those banks, those asset managers. They've talked about these big consultancies. I have them as clients, but I dip in and I dip out. I don't have to wear the suit and tie. I don't have to be stuck at the desk. I get to go there and give the best of myself and then remove myself from that environment, which I love because I, I've i tried the corporate track, as you know, with investment banking. It wasn't for me and we can go into reasons why perhaps that wasn't the case, but I guess I'm fortunate in the sense that I removed myself from that environment where I wasn't flourishing very early. And a lot of people, they don't make that realization until they're in the 40s, 50s. And, and it causes a lot more problems the longer you leave it. Well, I, I listened to one of your podcasts, Play Near the Games, I touched on earlier, which is a say, very, very good podcast, where you talked about a, a quarter life crisis. <laughs> yeah. And uh, 
that is like a really interesting concept to me. It's um, and I think you can actually see that, especially post COVID as well. There's a lot of people perhaps going through the same kind of uh, project at the moment as well. Is it possible to practice on that at all? Of course, yeah. I think you know the concept of a, of a midlife crisis is, is well established. I don't need to explain that. I think I, w- I was fortunate in the sense that I I got to have a, a quarter life crisis and I came to that crashing or crushing realization in my mid twenties is that I was on the wrong track and I had been funneled into a career. I'd been funneled into a path that I didn't even realize I was on because traditionally, and you guys will know this as well, traditionally you had kind of 18 to 21 years of learning. You absorb knowledge and then for another 40 years, you execute on that knowledge and you work traditionally in one industry, maybe even in one company for the rest of your life. That just doesn't happen anymore, right? The world has changed completely on its head, even more so since COVID. But I guess I didn't realize that being somewhat, you know, smart or successful. I was an A-grade student. I just, not to sound arrogant, but I found it easy and not everyone does. And I appreciate that's a privilege, but it came easily to me. So what do smart kids do? They go to the best college, then they're supposed to go into banking, financial services, become a lawyer, a doctor. None of those things inspired me, James, none of them. But I was told that's where I was supposed to go. So that's where I went. And I did it unthinkingly, unblinkingly, and I just accepted it. But I think finally, after a couple of years being in the system and realizing that I was constantly battling against my own interest, I was constantly working in a way that didn't align with my skill set, didn't align with my superpowers, I was pushing numbers around the screen. It's not what I'm good at. I'm good with people, (laughs) good communicator. Why am I sat looking at Excel spreadsheets? Why am I on the phone? executing trades with people I'll never ever see. And it just didn't make sense because I'm not numerical. I'm I'm better with the English language than I am with numbers. And I'll admit that that failure all day long. So the easy thing to have done would have just been to stay where I was because it was comfortable. I had my job, decent salary, nice big name above the door, driving a BMW in my 20s. But thankfully, I think I had the the bravery to throw it all away and start again. And most people, they don't want to throw it all away, all the hard work that they've done. But I believed that I could teach myself or reinvent myself in a way that was better aligned with with my passions and my interests. Well, it's, very, it's, it's an incredibly brave thing to do, uh, especially when you get kind of used to one set of trappings as well, and then to mm. kind of move out of it. So obviously, previously, it's all about life lessons. Um, that decision to do that brave decision that you did was that inherent to you or did you, was that something that you got from your parents, for example, or, you know, mm. did you get that kind of bravery to do it? It's a really good question. Really good question. Um, so there's a couple of ways that I want to take this. Number one, yes, it was inherent in my personality. And number two, I did not get it from my parents. <laughs> and I don't mean that as a, as a slight or an insult to them. And I love them both dearly and they've been very, very good to me. And I'll explain why, what I mean by that. But yes, it was inherent to me in the sense that I have made brave decisions before when I realized life wasn't working out the way I wanted it to. So the story I always tell all of my corporate training clients when I do a communication skills workshop, usually they'll come to me for the art of public speaking or persuasion or something like that. And I always tell them, I was not like this. 
when I was a teenager. I was very, very shy. I was extremely reserved, extremely introverted. Even the thought of raising my hand in class petrified me, wouldn't do it. And then that really carried on for quite some time. And then one day I made the singular decision that I use, I refuse to be afraid anymore. That was the singular decision one day. Like I refuse to be afraid anymore. And I made a game with myself. I basically gamified my progress every single day as a teenager. I was not allowed to go to bed without having a one conversation with a stranger. So that was the goal I set myself. Every single day, you must go outside, push yourself outside your comfort zone, have a conversation with a stranger. And over time, you start to understand what makes people laugh, what makes people uncomfortable, when to lean in, when to step away, um, what what really gets people attention. And just with all those repetitions, all that practice, all that building up, I call it micro-bravery. With that micro-bravery, you just grow and grow and grow. And of, of course, inevitably, 20 years later, with all those reps, 365 repetitions a year at minimum, you're going to get better. You will become a better communicator. You will. So I think I'd made those those singular decisions before to step out of my comfort zone. With regards to it coming from my parents, no, they 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 loved me. They look out for me. They still do. But they came from a previous generation where they didn't understand that you could become a founder or you could become an entrepreneur or you could become a professional footballer. That was reserved for other people. You're supposed to be a doctor, a lawyer, or a lawyer. <laughs> I say those are your choices. So there you go. Um, you're good at books. You know, you're good at your exams. Just stick with that. So no, they they were completely, I think, taken aback by my decision to throw it all away and move to Canada. You know, I moved to, to Whistler for a year just to learn snowboarding uh, and then found my way back to my original love, of course, which was professional football. But they didn't understand it at the time. They understand it now because this is, you know, 13 years ago. But it certainly didn't come them, but they've been supportive in their own way. I was going to say, uh, Whistler, so from Hong Kong to Whistler. <laughs> Is the most legend of Hong Kong to practice on? Very, very natural move, right? No, there's, there's zero, right? There's absolutely zero. And, you know, we we didn't come from money. We're, you know, very kind of middle class, both you know, my parents were teachers, their parents were teachers. Um, so we were comfortable, but not rich. And, you know, we couldn't afford to go on holidays to the Alps every year. And yeah. there's definitely no ski slopes in, in Hong Kong. So <laughs> I, I never learned, I'd never set foot on a snowboard or a ski, just something in my head that I had that I wanted to become good at because I loved the ocean. I loved kind of bodyboarding, surfing, and just that feeling of being at one with nature. And I, I just missed that. And I just wanted to pick up a new skill. And one of my principles always is, you know, this is this is a podcast about lessons. It's a podcast about principles. One of my principles is that if you're not building, moving, or connecting, you will always be unhappy. But if you can move, build, or connect with people, moving your body, building a skill, a habit, building a family, you'll be happy. You will. And usually when we find ourselves depressed or in a bit of a hole, if you actually analyze your life and look at it and how you're spending your time, you're probably not doing enough of those three things. You're probably too sedentary at your laptop. You're probably not socializing. You're not spending enough time with your family or friends. And you're not building a new skill. You've atrophied yeah, into complacency. And that's what happens in a lot of corporate jobs is you atrophy into this sense of complacency. And I just, I didn't want that. So I thought, bugger it, off we go to Whistler, best best ski resort on earth and just learn how to snowboard. Yeah. Excellent. So I think it's also as well, saying here as well, it's like when you're starting going down a certain part, time flies as well. And before you know, it's like, Jesus, where's that time gone? And then that makes you more scared to do something because you've gone too far down the route to... 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100
Yeah, it's it's difficult, right? But yeah, it's it's that sunk it's that sunk cost fallacy, right? Which you yeah. which I'm sure you know about through work or through your own, your own personal experience. The sunk cost fallacy of you you've invested so much time, so much effort, so much financial that you don't want to unwind it. You, you you don't want to take off the golden handcuffs a lot of the time for people in white collar jobs. They've got a mortgage, they've got kids, they can't unwind it, or at least they believe that they can't unwind it. They probably can, but it does take a lot of bravery and it's not for everyone. Again, it's this is my lessons learned. They won't apply to everyone, but they will apply to some of you. Yeah. Uh, one thing I've learned after losing my parents is life's too short and you know tomorrow's definitely not a given so you've got and I heard somewhere recently and it is a bit of a cliche but you've got to live every day like it's last because one day you're going to be right and you don't want to be thinking I can help I've missed out on stuff now on the back of that so it's completely completely so, I mean like you've uh, as part of your mentoring and coaching you've, some, you've studied some world class athletes and entrepreneurs and look for their habits and their patterns. What have you noticed? Have you seen there's certain habits and patterns that these guys actually do? Yeah, there's definitely patterns, right? Success leaves trails. It it leaves patterns behind. And you can't necessarily guarantee success by following the recipe, but it's a good place to start. And I have had the, the good fortune of interviewing, you know, multiple gold medalists and very successful authors, Olympic, uh, you know, Hollywood actors, etc. And the one, there's a few things that stand out. Number one is that obsession is necessary. It's a necessary precondition for any kind of excellence because you can't be normal and expect abnormal returns. It doesn't work. It doesn't compute. And every single person who has achieved some sense of mastery in whatever field is always obsessed with their craft. And it's actually a beautiful thing to see. Obsession kind of gets a bad rap a lot of the time because it's maybe self-indulgent or selfish or it's, I think it scares people sometimes when, when you see someone so in the zone and completely in flow with what they're doing because people are afraid that they don't have that within them. And I think we all do. You just haven't found the thing yet. So I know that a lot of life is about finding balance. However, the competing truth is that nothing amazing or incredible will ever happen without a small period or a sustained period of imbalance where you have to go all in on something. And the most obvious area that you see that is sport, clearly. The level of obsession you need to get good at your craft, the number of, you know, the 10,000 hour rule, Everyone kind of has heard about that. It's probably a lot more than that. In reality, that's just the bare minimum. Uh, so, you, you know, people get rewarded in, in public for what they practice in private. It's kind of my one-liner on that. People get rewarded in public for what they practice in private. You never see the repetitions in the dark. You only see the Grammy. You see the Oscar nomination. You don't see all the hard work behind the scenes. So that's something I've definitely learned. And then if I can give one more, it would be married to that would be they generally, they have very, very good interpersonal skills. It's very hard to become successful or wealthy if you don't work well with other people, if you don't get along well with others. You can't actually do it alone unless you're, yeah. Yeah, I guess even even these Olympians, right? You're a sprinter or you're a rower. You still need people. You need coaches around you. So they're generally very, very good communicators. And that clarity of speech comes from clarity of thought because they've done the work. So the clarity of speech comes from the clarity of thought. And 
you know, last but not least, I would probably say that in terms of the really, really successful ones, they have insane levels, insane levels of self-belief and conviction in whatever they're building, in whatever skill set they have. They just know that they'll be successful. And whilst it's not sufficient, it is necessary. And once you realize, you look around you, once you realize that in the world of business, those who have the most self-belief are often the most successful, not necessarily the smartest or the most skilled or most talented, but those who are fueled by self-belief tend to make it, then the world starts to make sense. Does that self-belief, you think, come back on because of the framework of practice that they've done beforehand, that they can then rely on the system to not get them through, but they know the process is there? Definitely. I, th I think that's a huge part of it. And people don't like to hear that because it's not sexy. Mm. It's not a sexy answer. Oh, practice a lot. Prepare a lot. It'll be really good. Christ, that sounds like a lot of work. It is a lot of work. <laughs> but <laughs> that's the reality. And people don't want to do the work. They just want to be famous. No one wants to do the work. Everyone wants to be rich. No one wants to do the work. So that preparation, that practice does eliminate doubt, el eliminate self-confidence, and eliminates anxiety. It's one of the things I tell to people when they're preparing for a speech or a presentation at work. They say, oh, I feel really nervous about how it's going to go. I say, the amount of hours that you need to practice for this presentation to go well, have you committed to doing those number of hours? No. Okay. Well, you know there's a gap. So until you close the gap, you're not going to feel comfortable. That's why it's not smooth. That's why your delivery isn't on point. That's why it doesn't segue nicely from slide to slide because you haven't put in the reps. So people don't want to hear it, but it, it is the right answer. Um, there is another way that you can borrow confidence as well, right? So you confidence stacks, right? The, the small wins, they stack, they compound. You can also loan confidence from other people. And that's where having mentors, that's where having supportive husband, wife, partner around you is really, really helpful. Friends that will push you and believe in you because you can borrow confidence as well, but we can't always rely on that. The real confidence comes from action and results and past wins and practice. I think it was um, one of the interesting things. You've got quite an interesting history with football that I think most of the things you've just said there, obsessed with your craft, um, the work you do in private will will get you the rewards in public, etc. Um, I read about you having trials at Notts County, Nottingham Forest and Derby. Correct. And that for you was quite a learning experience because that was the the bit where you were still quite young, still 16, 17 or something? Yeah, I was 15. Can you tell us a bit about that yeah. and kind of what you yeah. what you learned from that experience? Yeah, I, I learned loads from that experience. I think, number one, I'm living in Hong Kong at this point, right? I'm a Hong Kong born and raised kid, flown to the U to do these trials at these big historic clubs. So there's a level, there's an intimidation factor there, clearly, even though I know I'm good. That's a different kettle of fish being thrown in there. And I think the first trial was with Derby County, who is who are my team, actually. So that's my my boyhood team. My father's from Derby. His father's from Derby. So the pressure there was kind of exponential in, in terms of wanting to do well and the pressure you put on yourself. So that one actually didn't go that well for two reasons. Number one, I was anxious and that inhibits peak performance. And number two, they didn't really give me the opportunities, the minutes to really show that I could perform at that level. But I also, I put that back on me. I put that back on me because if I had had more self-belief, more confidence, a bit more, you know, chest out arrogance, I would have demanded to play. 
And that's, you know, a Christian or someone like that would have been not, would not have acquiesced in the same way that I did. They would have been like, coach, put me in better than him. Watch me. And I didn't have that level of self-confidence at that age. But I did, it did make me realize that, okay, for the next one at Nottingham Forest, I am actually good enough to play at this level. So that trial went better. I was with Michael Dawson, uh, who went on to play for Tottenham for England. Great guy, great character, great leader. And I felt at home there. I felt like I could play at that level. But it was just a short trial. And then last but not least, Notts County, the smallest of the three clubs, but that's where I did best. They gave me the most minutes. I played better. I think that confidence level increases, increases. But the reality is I was always going to come back to Hong Kong unless one of them made me an offer I can't refuse. And, you know, Notts County said, we'd like to keep you, but, you know, we're not going to throw the family jewels at you, but we'd like you to stay if you can. But the reality was my parents didn't envisage that for me. I didn't truly believe it in myself that I could do it. So I went back and I did my A-levels and I went to university and I kind of shelved all those dreams of professional until my late 20s. And as you know, I came back and played professional football. I think my first contract was 26 or 27 years old in the Hong Kong Premier League. So I got to achieve a dream, but I didn't get to achieve my full dream. So if I'm honest with you, and I, and I hope to be nothing but honest, is that do I regret not trying harder at that point in time? Do I regret not being braver? Yeah, I do, Michael. I, I regret not being braver. I should have left my country and just moved on my own to England and tried to make it. But that's a huge decision for a 15-year-old to make. But you see it all the time in the news, right? But it's a lot of bravery. And my life was fairly comfortable in Hong Kong. So it's not like I was growing up in Africa or South America. You get given this chance in England, you take it with both hands. So actually having a level of of scarcity in your youth is actually a real forcing function for achievement. It's why all the best strikers in the world are South American and African, because they're hungry. They are hungry and they didn't have anything. And that's why they're just insatiable. They have an insatiable appetite to score and do well. I 100% agree with that. I mean, you see it in all different walks of life as well is I think if you're too comfortable, you won't get pushed out your comfort zone because you don't need to. But in the same respect, they were big decisions as a 14, 15, 16 year old, right? And yeah, you, you wouldn't have gained the knowledge and experience at that point anyway because you were so young. So you wouldn't have yeah. known. It's it's difficult, isn't it? Because you can't look back and think at the time is it's obviously like it's experience is wasted on the uh, on the old, isn't it? You know what I mean? <laughs> it you is. Yeah, it's it's, it's difficult. I, I don't know. It, it's in the same way though. It's like um. My son's a massive football fan, huge, huge football fan. How old is he? Uh, just turned 11. Nice. And he's, he's good. He's very good. He's a very good player. But I, I can feel my dad now talk to me when he says stuff like this. So like, when I was younger, get your education. Education, education, education. Same for me. Same for me, yeah. But should I be saying to him, actually, i tell you what, go for it. Give it a crack. If it doesn't work out, we're still going to be here. You're still going to have a roof over your head anyway. But then... I'm trying to be realistic. I'm trying to shelter him from the disappointment of not making it. And then what mm. do you fall back on? You know, it's, and that's where we are. You know, it's, it's just diff very, very difficult, but you don't it's want a, to be yeah, that like, opportunity. No, you don't. And and the reality is that m what most people don't realize about professional football or professional sport is it is exceptionally ruthless. 
Hmm. It is a really ruthless industry and 99.9% of people don't make it. And it's not possible. And it doesn't mean you shouldn't try. But just knowing that eyes open, it's it's hard. It's really, really hard. But again, and he's becoming in the process while he tries. So having the resilience, dealing with disappointment, there may be good lessons there. I think the best the best the best plan is the one that keeps your or the best option is the one that keeps your options open. So doing as much as necessary academically to give himself a parachute whilst allocating all of the extra energy towards football is probably the best way to play it until he gets to an age, which will probably be 14, 15, and 16, where he'll have to choose, like really have to choose. And the reality is that now have to go, the world is your university. All the, all the tools are out there. There's incredible books, incredible podcasts, incredible people you can learn from. You can teach yourself how to code. You can, there's a million ways to make a million bucks, genuinely. So I would say the world is his oyster if he's got you know two brain cells to rub together, which as your son, I'm sure he does, and he'll be fine. So I would hate for him to give up the thing he loves doing the most if that thing is football. Uh, and he should, I think, give it a good go because then he won't have the regret that I have and I could be honest enough to say it's it's a regret. Um, it was Christopher Hitchens that said, in life, we must choose our regrets. So which one can you live with, I guess, is is the real question. Which one can you bear living with? Yeah. Yeah, it's, I think, yeah. yeah, I think that's really interesting. You So touching on sport again and, and children in sport, you do work with the Indochina Starfish Foundation, I read. Um, yes. You help raise money for them. I suppose, what what is it about sport that can really help and um, develop kids? And what are you seeing? Because that, that's for a charity for mm -hmm. kids in Cambodia, correct? Yes. Kudos to you, by the way, for the research. <laughs> very, very flattering that you've looked, you've looked in depth. And they're a beautiful charity. I've had the opportunity to work with them for the last nine years. And we do a big fundraising dinner here in Hong Kong. So they're in Phnom Penh. They started with 11 kids. There's about 700 there now all kind of orphans or very poor kids coming from very poor families in Cambodia. We take them off the streets, we put school clothes on their back, we give them the books, we give them teaching, and they get professional level football coaching every single day, which is amazing. So I think with sport, it gives you camaraderie, it gives you teamwork, it shows you, like in any organization, how to toe the line between standing out and showing your individual brilliance whilst also getting along and playing well with others because you can't do it all by yourself. Uh, I think it teaches you how to win without feeling like you're the king of the universe and an absolute god. And it teaches you how to lose without feeling like you're a worthless human being. So I think there's there are so many lessons, but I think in terms of the resilience, in terms of seeing the fruits of my labor every single week because you you know when you win whether you deserved it or not you know if you got lucky mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah exactly. if you scraped it so you, you, there's a very clear link between the inputs and the outputs and i like that you the improvement is down to you whether you put in the hours to practice whether the, your teammates put in the hours whether you prepared well so i just think oh, there are so many transferable business uh principles or principles from sport to business sport to life that are really useful to kids regardless of of what they do afterwards i, I can't remember who said that quote but the uh, the 
the harder I work, the luckier I get. Um, yeah, because uh, it's a it's a great one. It comes no, it's it's very true, very very true. Yeah, uh, no, J- James and I um, both loved sport, and I actually met some twenty five odd years ago. We were, that was a scary principle in itself in working that one out through rugby and um, uh, yeah I, I think there's nothing having a team and the camaraderie and everything that works through so when I read that about I was I, I checked out Indochina a bit more detail and that's um, that's a fascinating thing um, so when with your professional life the, the obviously corporate trainer or career coach if you had like a bunch of children in front of you, what was the kind of things that you'd say to them and young adults about towards their career path and how they should help develop it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, with with the youngsters, it's it's a different message. It's a different delivery, obviously, than it would be with you know speaking to a group of seasoned executives or you know people in their thirties and forties. With the kids and the university students, I will generally tell them two things. And if you've heard them on previous podcasts, I apologize, but I repeat them because they're true. So number one, talent equals practice in disguise is my kind of one-liner on everything. Talent is practice in disguise. Every time you see some kind of excellence in any arena, it's because that person is has been obsessive in building their craft behind the scenes and you saw the final repetition. So I try to assuage them that just because you're not good at something now doesn't mean that you won't be good in the future. So the the power to the word yet. I'm not this yet. I was not a public speaker when I was 15. Now I get paid to speak for a living. It's ridiculous. The concept blows my mind still sometimes when I think about it because I could never have envisaged that for myself 20, 25, 30 years ago, whatever it was. So talent is practice in disguise. And also that I tell them, similar to what we were just talking about, James, with your son and football, is that you'll be most successful where you're most intensely curious. You'll be most successful where you're most intensely curious. I ignored that advice for a long time. When I was in financial services, when I was in recruitment for a little while, I'm mostly intensely curious about how people work. I love social psychology. I love communication. I love unlocking something in someone by choosing the right words. That fascinates me. So psychology, language fascinates me. So it's only natural now that I would be working in podcasting. I'd be working one-to-one coach. I'd be working corporate training. That makes sense. But I'd as that until much, much later. I'm glad I got there. Better to get there too late than, than never at all. So it's the same with football, right? If you love something so much, it's pretty hard to be bad at it. That's pretty if you absolutely love doing it. So if you can find the thing that looks like work to others, but feels like play to you, you're done. Someone will someone will pay you money for that skill. So you don't need to work it out now. You're 13, you're 14, you're 15, 18 years old. You don't need to know how to monetize it now. Just become really, really good at the thing you're really, really passionate at, passionate about. Someone will pay you for that skill. That's what I would tell them. I love that. It's pretty hard to be bad at something you love. That's just <laughs> it is, right? a great quote. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So... <laughs> It's pretty hard to suck <laughs> if you spend that much time and energy doing something. So it's a fine. I'll just talk to him about the the football again, though. With I can only speak about one team, my son, but it's he's very much results driven. So if you lose or make a mistake, doesn't like it. But I say to him that is part of actually growing and developing is by getting it wrong. So that way you can learn why you got it wrong. 
oh, the pass went that way because you kicked that side of the boot or, you know, you made the wrong decision at that point. As long as you've learned from it, it's not a mistake, as I say to him. But No, it's not. I, he then says, but we didn't win. And he's like, well, you didn't win. Don't let it ruin your weekend. Mm. Why didn't you win? You know, and it's, and it's trying to get that learning curve at the same time. It's, it's different. I want to. I don't want to be disappointed, but obviously you play sport to win, right? Of and, and you want that competitive nature. But if you didn't win at that moment in time, it's not the end of the world as long as you learn from it. But he doesn't always learn from it because he takes it too personally. <laughs> it's like <laughs> you know, a, com- a competitive drive is actually a healthy thing, and I like it. You should hate losing. However, you can get really good outcomes with bad processes, i.e. you can play a horrible game and still win 1-0. And you can get really bad outcomes with good processes. You can play beautiful, play out from the back, keep possession, have 50 shots on goal, and still lose 1-0 because of a counter-attack, one sucker punch. So the 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 obviously that will come with maturity, right? He's 11. With maturity and time, I think he'll come to see that actually if you played really, really well and didn't win, you can still be happy. I've walked off the field many times like with a nil-nil draw and be like, that was brilliant. I loved every moment of that. We just played so well, the ball just didn't go in the net. But you can't control necessarily in life, right? But you can control what you put in. You can control the processes and the input. So just focusing on... I'll tell you what, Michael, the, the message. there are certain things in life that I will never get or understand right. And football, when somebody says a great nil-nil draw, that was a fantastic game. I did it whack. It's one of those um, one of those ones that only the football purists will understand. Uh, yeah. yeah. And it, the time box people are on. <laughs> yeah, especially for our American brothers and sisters who love very high point-scoring games like basketball, which is like 120 to 118. Yeah. But like nil-nil? 0-0 zero, zero. Oh, what's a tie? Yeah. I don't even understand the concept of a tie or a draw which is yeah it's yeah you're not you're not alone there was there was a great set of adverts about how to americanize football and it was like it was things like multi-ball yeah so like 10 footballs would appear at the same time i'm all for that so yeah i'm for it i'd watch it i'd still watch it i'm not sure i'd want to play it but i would watch it yeah yeah um it's just one of the things that um the the sake and and the name and uh, uh, the the bit of history of that so so one um, you've you've got a certification which I think I'm I'm going to go for this one, uh, Wine and Spirit Education Trust. You have a merit for sake. I, so I'm already go for it. Um, <laughs> but the the brand um, mm-hmm. and the history and stuff and and how did that develop and uh, and what sort of advice would you have for people in terms of like trying to develop a brand uh, and those sort of things because it's a fantastic name. And I'm going to let you say it. <laughs> so Four Fox Sake is really one of my first loves in in the business world. It was started by four friends, so you know, close friends of mine. Four friends, the Four Foxes, and we're all passionate sake drinkers and sake lovers. And we appreciated this ancient beverage, but we we asked ourselves, why on earth do we only ever drink it in certain situations, which is in a Japanese restaurant with sushi? There's a very specific ritual that surrounds the drinking of sake and the accompanying hangover the next day is also part of that ritual, I guess, because you get excited and you overindulge and you think you're drinking water and, and you're really not. But we, we love drinking it and you know we saw that 
was massively underrated, underappreciated. And if you walked into any bar in Hong Kong, any nightclub, any five-star hotel, and you just canvassed opinion of the people in the bar and said, Amy, five brands of beer. Anyone can do that, right? Heineken, Carlsberg, Asahi, rattle them off. Five brands of whiskey. Easy. Name me three brands of vodka, three brands of gin. Easy. Mm. Name me one, one brand of sake. Not five, not two, one. No one can do it except your absolute sake geeks and sake nerds. So that told us there's a huge opportunity in the market commercially. None of the big players like Perno, Rick, Diageo, Moe, Hennessy have a single sake in their portfolio. So we saw the white space and we loved the products and we thought, you know, it doesn't exist in the world. Can we actually put our money where our mouth is? You know, we talk a good game. Let's actually put our money where our mouth is and create something, put it out into the world. And we positioned it as a premium kind of top of the range, luxurious sake that is very much the antithesis of what sake is at the moment, which is tradition, um, old fashioned, whether you like it or not, it is. And uh, all the bottles kind of look fairly, not monotonous, but there, there isn't a huge amount of brand differentiation. So in Japan, they always talk about the prominence of the family and the area, the water, the rice, which is all fit. But people, the modern consumer buys brands. They buy Ace of Spades champagne. They buy Casamigos tequila. They buy AVJ Reynolds. So people default to brand and people buy people. And you have to create something that appeals to modern taste. So that was it. We, we, we dug into the ancient history and philosophy and religion of Japan. And we found there are multiple gods and goddesses. One goddess is called Inari, Inari Okami. She's the goddess of sake, swordsmiths, foxes, and, uh, and rice. So the rice, sake, swordsmiths, and foxes. So we just absolutely lucked out that I just happened to be this god or goddess, the patron saint of all of these things. And as you see now, our bottle has this kind of samurai sword, a silver steel finish, and it is a tribute to the to the goddess of, of sake, rice, swordsmiths, and foxes. So four friends, the goddess of sake and foxes, four fox sake. Now, if you get a little bit drunk and you say their name quite quickly, clearly there's an in inherent play on words and we do like a bit of punnery at four fox sake, but we never lead with that. We always like to leave the joke as an inside joke. And those who arrive there will arrive there. Again, I love my American brothers and sisters, but sometimes they're quite slow to get there when it comes to the wordplay. And um, the Aussies and the Brits to pick it up fairly quickly. But you can't build a brand around a, a tasteless joke. So the the liquid itself is genuinely world-class. We got 94 points in decanter. It is a Junmai Daiginjo, which is kind of the Grand Cru level of sake. So every grain of rice is polished until it's half the original size. We use snow melt water from the Nagar. So we're very careful that whilst we're having a bit of fun with it, that the product lives up to the expectation and the price tag. And when you drink it once, you will drink it twice. So yeah, that was eight years ago. And we're now in 10 different countries, some of the world's nicest, you know, five-star hotels and bars and clubs. And we're not there yet. We're not at the size we want to be, but it's growing and people love it. And there's a lot to be said as an entrepreneur, having a physical product like selling services is one thing, but when someone, you're in a bar and you see someone pick up off the shelf something that you put into the world and they drink it, that is like a next level of feeling of achievement and fulfillment and excitement that you can't from flinging someone a service online.
or selling you know SaaS, right? It does, it's not the same. I tell you what, you can hear the passion, um, and um, and for anybody on the podcast, you can now understand why I asked Michael to say the brand and then go through him. So uh, yeah, no, I love that. No, that's brilliant. Thank you. No, but and you should definitely yeah, if if you're interested, go for those those qualifications. So I, I did the the WSET in wines and spirits and also the the professional level in, in sake. Really interesting, really interesting courses. And anytime you get to put on a blindfold and taste um, hundreds of different sakes or hundreds of different wines is never a bad day. So, <laughs> No, not at all. You, um, I listened to a podcast that you did and you were saying about that, that you could actually tell um, what side of the river the grapes have been grown. Is that right? Yeah. I, I don't know if my palate is there now. But certainly the world's best sommeliers can, you know, for Bordeaux, for example, can tell you if it was called right bank pretty reliably. And it's it's amazing. You can, to extract that level of information just from, you know, your olfactory sensors and, and your palate alone, eyes closed, give me a, essentially a glass of grape juice and be able to tell you what country, what side of the river, what region, whether it was a hot year or a cold year, whether it was stainless steel or wood, that it was, you know, maturated in i think that's just amazing it's just a cool skill i think it's i just think it's fun and i just ran with it which is which is why i did it because i had these grand notions of of being in food and beverage and like a lot of people they dream of opening a restaurant and i soon realized that i was a terrible terrible chef so i was much better served learning about the the alcohol and beverage side of things and you know that's why i'm in sake now was in wine sales and distribution for a while too what are you most proud of this is a question I ask on my own podcast as well, and it's very different receiving it <laughs> than asking it. <laughs> because when I ask it, I'm so smug, and and now I realize as a guest how difficult it is to answer. But it, I think it's a good question, which is why I use it as well. <laughs> Proud of. Mm-hmm. A couple of things. I think the very first section of this podcast, I alluded to the fact that I've designed my life. I'm very proud of the fact that I've designed and engineered my life. I am the author. I live a self-authorized life. I decide where to be, who to be with, when I'm going to be there. By and large, we all have obligations. All right. I'm not, you know, I don't just do whatever I want to do. We all have certain obligations, but by and large, I get to do the work I want when I want. As long as I get the results, obviously for my co-founders and partners and everyone else, I'm, I'm free. And freedom to do what you want, when you want, is the ultimate form of wealth. So if I want to take my son and my daughter swimming at 3 p.m. on a Monday or at 10 a.m. on a Tuesday, I can do it. If I want to go sack off the afternoon and play golf, I can do it. I'll make it up later. I'll happily work till 3 a.m. on the podcast or put in together a presentation for my next workshop because I love it. I just love doing it. And someone very, very smart, very young but very smart said to me recently, he who runs for fun never gets tired. And that's why I think I have all this energy to do all these things because I love doing it. I don't get tired. People ask me how I juggle it all. I just love it. So I don't run that and I'm proud that I've built that. And then more importantly, I think I'm proud of the fact that I make time for the kids. And I know that's very important for you as well. Uh, I am trying to be a good dad, a present father. I make a lot of time for them and I enjoy it. I don't do it out of, you know, obligation or under duress. I love spending time with them and I get to do that. I get to do pickups and drop-offs. I get to spend time with them during the week. And yeah, I'm proud of that because not everyone is able to and the world is struggling for decent male role models. You guys know that. 
I think if I can be one for my kids, then that's a step in the right direction. So another uh, another easy question for you then. What do you like to be? <laughs> another easy one. <laughs> Here's an alley-oop for you. What do I want my legacy to be? Hmm. I think I'll try and put it in one line because I like one-liners. What do I want my legacy to be? I think I would like people to say that they were better. They liked themselves more when they were around me. Yeah. Uh, do you know what? I was reading an article, and I mentioned it a couple of times, other, other ones as well, but um, at your eulogy, you got your CV, and you got your eulogy. Is it David Brooks? Oh, David Brooks, I think, wrote the article. And it's, uh, it's a really big question, you know, because you spend all this time trying to do stuff at work and build up your your brand at work, whatever like that. But then yeah. you want to be remembered for the right reasons. And to me, I found, as I said earlier, life is very short and I'd like to be remembered for the right reasons at a eulogy, I think, you know, and it's... yeah. I probably won't ask Mike what he reckons it's going to be at my UG. But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, In the nicest possible way, I hope I'm giving it. So, yeah, <laughs> you will be, mate. And you're not doing mine. So, <laughs> I there wasn't even for a second when I hesitated there when I that I thought that it would be anything to do with work or business. It's not important, but if people could say that. They liked themselves more when they were around me, that they felt they were the best version of themselves when they were with me in my presence. I think that's pretty good. That's, that's very good. And that, that would be the legacy, wouldn't it? That legacy would then pass on because you make other people feel like that. They then pass that on as well and it goes on. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, for the same reasons you created this podcast, I created my podcast was because I like helping other people. I genuinely like it. And, and people feel that energy and that passion when I do the corporate training and the coaching work one-to-one. It's pretty hard to fake enthusiasm, to be honest. It's pretty hard to fake passion. So I think they feel that I genuinely want to help. And when you in that place, people will open up to you. So I think that's 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 a decent legacy to, to leave if you can. Definitely. Perfect. Listen, I'm conscious it's your Friday, coming into your Friday late afternoon. <laughs> you probably got to sake time. Yeah. Sake clock. It's almost sake clock. <laughs> But no, thank you very, very much for your time and your insights. Really, really appreciate it. Awesome stuff. Oh, it's just love it. Absolute pleasure. This, you know, I think, as I said to you on LinkedIn when we first got in touch with each other, I am busy, but again, the, I have the full views in what I'm busy on and what I'm busy working on. And doing a podcast like this with you guys has been, you know, if you can talk about kind of red zone and green zone, this is always a green zone activity, talking with people who are willing to just have an intimate, honest, candid conversation with a few laughs thrown in, great. Like, that's a win every single day. So thank you for carving out an hour for me. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for listening to this episode. Really do appreciate you taking the time to do that. As always, please remember to like and subscribe. It really does help us to improve the show. Thanks very much. Take care.